My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with William Carroll, James Rowe, and Emily Lowen. You don't have to pay attention to current events in Canada for very long to get a sense that fossil fuel industries have a lot of power here. But even careful attention to most media sources probably won't be enough to really let you dig into that and figure out what it means. Why is that industry so powerful? Who are the players in terms of people and organizations? How does it all work? How do they exercise that power? And perhaps most importantly, in the context of a growing climate crisis and the industry's seemingly steadfast commitment to override and undermine indigenous sovereignty, what can we do about it? One attempt to address some of those questions is an initiative called the Corporate Mapping Project. It brings together academic and community-based researchers to investigate the nuts and bolts of how fossil fuel industries in Western Canada work, and how they exert power and influence in relation to other sectors of the economy, governments, other kinds of institutions, and our general cultural and political life. The Corporate Mapping Project started as a conversation between Carol, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Victoria or UVic in British Columbia, and a couple of researchers with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, an independent research institute with a focus on social, economic, and environmental justice. They put together a network of researchers based at a number of universities and community organizations, and successfully applied for funding in 2015. The network includes Roe, who's an associate professor of environmental studies at UVic. The project encompasses a lot of different kinds of research, but it is a high priority for them to produce knowledge that will be useful to communities on the ground. For that reason, they've emphasized publishing accessible, public-facing reports on high-profile questions related to the fossil fuel industry. And they regularly engage with activists, advocates, and community members through meetings, conferences, and education sessions. And at least some of these have the aim of building skills for those active in fossil fuel-related struggles to do their own research into the corporate power that they're facing. In general terms, they've found, not surprisingly, that the power of fossil fuel industries is substantial, highly concentrated, and highly coordinated. The big players sit on each other's boards and collaborate through industry organizations, they invest huge amounts of money and effort in lobbying and exert tremendous influence on governments. They shape academic context through funding research and sitting on university boards of governors. Fossil fuel corporations are also tightly interconnected with the financial sector in Canada, with the country's five largest banks being among the largest funders of bitumen extraction in the world. And through skillful and well-funded media relations strategies, they're often successful at blunting critical media scrutiny and at exerting a powerful cultural influence. Yet despite all of this, opposition to the harms that fossil fuel industries do is widespread and growing. From indigenous nations resisting pipelines, to youth climate strikers, to the push for a Green New Deal and a just transition. And that opposition can only benefit from having a better understanding of the industry and its power. 
Take, for example, the struggle for divestment, which aims to get institutions and individuals to stop investing in fossil fuel industries. Rowe and Lowen, an undergraduate student in environmental studies and economics at UVic, are part of a campus-based activist group called Divest UVic. Students started organizing in 2013 and over the years have waged a wide-ranging campaign that included letters, petitions, and meetings with administrators, and escalated to things like disruptions of board meetings and a blockade of an administrative building. According to Lowen, having good knowledge about the industry has been crucial throughout the campaign, and developing an understanding of the specifics of industry influence on UVic's board was key in shaping their strategy later on. In February 2021, Divest UVic won an important victory when the university announced that they were divesting their working capital fund from fossil fuel industries. Though it is important to note that the struggle continues as their separately governed endowment fund has not yet divested. I speak with Carol, Rowe, and Lowen about the corporate mapping project, Divest UVic, and the importance of understanding fossil fuel industry power in Canada. I'm Bill Carroll. I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Victoria. And I'm the co-director of the Corporate Mapping Project. It's a six or seven year partnership that involves university-based researchers and community-based researchers and activists in really shining a bright light on the fossil fuel industry, particularly in Canada, highlighting the ways in which corporate power is organized and exercised. My name is James Rowe. I'm an associate professor of environmental studies at the University of Victoria and uh, work on the corporate mapping project with Bill and have also been an organizer for faculty working with students on the divestment campaign at UVic. My name is Emily Lowen. I use she and her pronouns. I am the lead organizer for Divest UVic and I'm the director of campaigns for the UVic Student Society. How did the corporate mapping project come together and what is it involved? We started to think about it in the fall of 2013. The thinking process involved Seth Klein and Shannon Daub from the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives BC office and myself. We had a number of email discussions trying to envision a project of this kind that would really, as I say, shine light on the problem of corporate power, particularly with regard to the fossil fuel industry in Canada. And I had done a lot of work on the social organization of corporate power throughout my career. So I guess it was quite a good fit from the start. And so we started developing a network, including James and other people at UVic and reaching out beyond UVic. And we developed a proposal it's a fairly long process of applying for this kind of grant. So we didn't start up until really the summer of 2015. As I say, we assembled a network of university-based researchers, but a lot of people with social movement involvement and, in fact, really based in communities and grassroots struggles of various kinds, including indigenous struggles and obviously environmentalism, but also the labor movement. We wanted to design a project that would really connect with communities and movements in creative and productive ways and bring people to the table for discussion. So a lot of our work has been really community engagement, if you like. But we've also had a really robust research agenda. What we decided from the start really was to think in terms of several streams of activity. One research stream was really looking at how economic power is organized in and around the fossil fuel sector. 
So we would look at different aspects of corporate power. For example, the way that corporate directors sit on each other's boards and thereby constitute an elite network of top-level capitalists, basically, who on the one hand are competing for market share, but also are cooperating in forming a kind of corporate community and developing a sense of their own general interest, for example, in profitable accumulation in this industry in Canada but also looking at on-the-ground economic organization of the industry in terms of how the big players actually operate and extract carbon from the earth and the whole analysis of commodity chains in which the resources moved to refining or final consumption and pipelines. Of course, that got us into looking at the contentious politics around pipelines and the flashpoints of protest and attempting to block fossil capital at key strategic locations. So that was one really important research stream connecting into various kinds of activities, including political protest and resistance and so on. But then we also wanted to look at how that corporate power reaches into political and cultural life in various ways, whether through lobbying, through mass media advertising and social media through funding relationships and foundations, that kind of thing, through revolving doors between the private sector and the public sector. So we've done a lot of research trying to map out those kinds of hegemonic power relations reaching into civil and political life. The final stream for us was to really build capacity for citizen monitoring of corporate power and influence. We've been really trying to develop an online presence, and of course, our studies are all available for free online at corporatemapping.ca. And we've done a lot of workshops and various kinds of community engagement trying to help build really the movement for an alternative energy system, what we might call energy democracy. I should say that we're looking not just at the economic organization of the fossil fuel sector, but at the enablers of that sector. And of course, the financial sector is a really important enabler. I mean, this industry wouldn't exist without the massive support from various financial institutions and institutional investors. What can you say in a big picture, broad strokes way about the corporate power of fossil fuel industries in Canada and how it works? Looking first at the organization of economic power, it's very tightly organized at the top. Of course, we live in an era of highly concentrated corporate capitalism. So the big players are really big and they really do dominate, including in this industry. And they dominate in various ways, not just in terms of the sheer economics of how big they are, but in terms of the way that the big players are also the major lobbyists, for example. We map the lobbying network and the number of meetings that take place, both at the federal level and provincial levels, is quite remarkable. There's just an ongoing conversation between state managers and lobbyists for the oil and gas industry. So it's a very tightly knit network. It's based in Calgary in terms of the actual fossil fuel companies, and they sit on each other's boards to a remarkable extent. So the popular image of a competitive industry is, I think, belied by all of that. And then, as I say, there are many connections beyond the immediate economics of fossil fuel extraction. Certainly, the support of the five largest Canadian banks is really quite remarkable In an international context, these are like the major funders of bitumen production in particular in the world, along with J.P. Morgan Chase Bank out of New York. 
And then there's basically a kind of pipeline, if you like, of corporate influence into culture through media relations, through the way that news is framed. You know, usually it's framed in an industry friendly way. Rarely are the really major problems of fossil capitalism unearthed by mainstream media. Part of our remit has been to work with alternative media to really spread the word in progressive communities and to develop this kind of critical analysis that's really evidence-based. We've also mapped out the elite networks of, for example, business activism and business leadership reaching into university boards of governors, the way that corporations are connected into the funding of various research centers and universities that are, in effect, producing knowledge for the fossil fuel sector. And then there's the political influence I mentioned earlier in terms of lobbying relations, but also regulatory capture. For example, the BC climate plan that was hatched three, four years ago now under the liberals, the BC liberals, very right-wing neoliberal party, it was actually hatched in Calgary in the boardroom of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. We, through freedom of information requests, we were able to out them, if you like, and quite a good piece of research was done by Shannon Dobb and her colleagues on this. So that's a particularly dramatic example, perhaps. But there's a lot of things like that that go on behind the scenes. And I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm a sociologist. This might look like conspiracy theory, but what we're doing is mapping out the actual practices through which the corporate power of the fossil fuel industry is kept in place in this country. I just wanted to share a follow-up to what Bill said from a piece of research he did with colleagues that really clarified for me the organized power of the fossil fuel industry, which is that they are the largest lobbyist in the country. And from Bill's research, they found that between 2011 and 2018, there were 11,000 lobby visits between the industry and the government, averaging out to seven visits a day. That just gives you a sense of who has the ear of our decision makers in Ottawa. And you said that not only is research important to the project, but so is engaging with people who are wrestling with these issues on the ground. What forms has that community engagement taken? We have been holding sessions trying to help build what we call a community of practice that connects academic researchers and community-based researchers and activists partly on the issue of monitoring corporate power and being able to actually research corporate power. One of our student researchers is leading our webinar series in how to actually research corporate power and how to map out these relationships of corporate power. So, you know, trying to develop capacity in the community for monitoring, but also just spreading critical knowledge of how corporate power actually works and how this entrenched capitalist interest in a really key economic sector is holding back the kinds of changes that need to happen pretty rapidly, as we know. We did a major conference in January 2018 on corporate climate accountability. And this was in conjunction with Greenpeace and West Coast Environmental Law and 350.org and some other really interesting groups. And we brought together, again, activists and researchers to really dig into these issues of corporate power. As I say, a lot of our research is really accessible 
Some of it is more, you know, academic kind of research published in refereed journals, but we try to make our research as accessible as possible. So again, the website, corporatemapping.ca, is a really good place to look for a lot of resources in terms of in-depth studies, as well as shorter commentaries that are taking up specific issues as they come up. And James, what have both your research activities and your more activist activities connected to the Corporate Mapping Project looked like at UVic? My work is focused primarily on the divestment movement itself, which has a similar underpinning to the Corporate Mapping Project, which is the assumption that the primary barrier to achieving action on climate change that we need for ongoing human flourishing is the organized power of the fossil fuel industry. And the role of divestment movements has been to chip away at that power, that sort of social and political license that the industry enjoys by convincing large, reputable organizations to pull their funds out. And the actual material removal of the funds matters, but probably even more so, at least in the earlier stages of divestment campaigns, was the public shaming when organizations would pull out. So research that I've done has just been tracking the growth of the movement and then also as a participant in the movement, particularly at UVic. And then actually became interested in the role of finance in enabling the industry. And so I've done a bunch of work on Canadian pension capital and the role that they play primarily in, unfortunately, obstructing needed energy transition. Our two major pension funds in Canada, the Canada Pension Plan and La Caisse in Quebec, the industry has its fingers on these pension funds, like they sit on the board. And so the interests of the industry are around the table when that institution, for instance, is making decisions around climate risk. And that's putting us not only at ecological risk, but it's actually a financial risk as well, given that these investments are not looking very good these days. Tell me more about the Divest UVic campaign. Over the years, I think we've tried basically every tactic in the organizer's book, or at least it feels that way. The Divest UVic campaign started in 2013, and we deployed a number of, I guess, softer tactics from letters to petitions to disrupting Board of Governors meetings, and then, you know, many, many meetings with the administration themselves, which often fell to sort of a, a dead end. And then fall of 2019, organizers decided to escalate tactics by doing a a soft blockade on the Michael Williams administration building, preventing administrators and staff from entering that building. So there is a number of tactics that we use to draw attention to this issue and have the administration take our demands seriously. And definitely, I think a key part of our success was the incoming of President Hall, who is definitely more receptive to divestment and other means of climate action as compared to the previous president. So President Hall came onto our campus in November of 2020, and students welcomed him on campus with a live mural art demonstration in front of the Michael Williams building, drawing attention to the urgency of the climate crisis and the need for him to take action as sort of the first priority business of his incoming as president. We had a few conversations with the president, and it didn't feel like it was going to move anywhere particularly quickly. 
However, behind the scenes, key faculty members were a part of the decarbonization working group that was supporting the implementation of UVic's responsible investment policy. And so I think there was a lot of behind the scenes advocacy happening at that point, and the tables were starting to turn. But absolutely, this eight-year running campaign, Divest UVic, keeping divestment as a priority agenda item and as a student and faculty priority was really important for the sustained momentum of the movement. So UVic announced that they were divesting their working capital fund which is a $256 million fund, they decided to remove $80 million from that fund and transfer it into a fossil fuel-free fund. The exact amount in this fund was approximately $4 million in fossil fuels as of 2020. So it's a relatively small amount of fossil fuels, but at the same time, a very marked success for the movement. And it does demonstrate that willingness to change and continue the momentum of divestment. For the next one, I'd be interested in hearing from all three of you. But let's start with Emily, speaking from your experience of being involved in the divestment campaign. What do you think makes research useful for movements, for campaigns, for activists on the ground? Most directly, this sort of research was really helpful when I'm having meetings with these administrators and members of the Board of Governors directly to understand what the political climate is, their background, where they're coming from. This research is just so instrumental in having relative success in these meetings, or at least anticipating a lack of success, I think is important as well. And being able to fully understand the political and the corporate climate at UVic is really key in being able to strategize and develop tactics that will effectively reach our goals. What happened last year is that UBC divested and UVic hadn't yet. And the campaigns have been around for roughly the same period of time using the same assembly of tactics that Emily described. And we're trying to figure out, like, wh- how did they beat us? Maybe a little bit competitively, and decided to look at the governing boards of the two institutions and realized that UVic was stacked with oil and finance that had vested interest in staying invested in fossil fuels, and UBC didn't. Their board was relatively clean in that regard, which helped make sense of that decision, which then actually helped lead us to change the composition of our board through organizing as students. They have a representative on the board and then faculty, we self-organized and made sure that we got our reps on the board so we could change the balance of power on the board of governors, which I think has made a real difference moving forward. And I think as we really expose the structure of corporate power, it has a number of benefits, I think, from an activist perspective. One is simply to raise people's moral indignation about the unjust, extreme inequalities, and the way that a relatively small class of people are really calling the shots. So we don't really live in a democracy in that sense, in an economic sense, certainly. And so that moral indignation, that could be a real motivator of people to get involved in activism. But then, as Emily and James have pointed out, the detailed knowledge that we get, you know, who's on the board and therefore motivating us to change the composition of the board, that knowledge can be very strategically important in figuring out what needs to happen in order to create meaningful change. I tend to see it as the research exposes power, which, as I say, has important political implications for democratically minded people. 
And it also enables us to propose alternatives that are more democratic and socially just. And as researchers, what kinds of things do you need to be doing to ensure that as you're asking and answering questions, that you're doing so in ways responsive to the needs of communities and movements and struggles on the ground? It's definitely important to really have a a strong dialogue, a continuing conversation between activists and researchers. And activists need to be at the table I'm a big fan of participatory action research. So the the commitment to activism and social change is built into the research program from the start. We've done that to some extent with the Corporate Mapping Project, but the project is very diverse. We have dozens of research projects that are ongoing. But that's the key, really, to build that kind of strong relationship of solidarity and information exchange so that we're learning from each other. Speaking specifically to some of the research that we've done on pension capital, it's extremely useful to be in partnership with an organization like the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives because you know we've published with them as opposed to with an academic journal that's behind a paywall. And so that research is readily available. It can circulate broadly. And the CCPA has resources where they can help us write good op-eds and get those op-eds placed in newspapers so that we have a broader reach. And then it's because of that broader reach that some of this research has then led us to be in deeper dialogue with some of the movements doing work around pension capital. And since one of the first reports we put out came out, a whole organization has formed a network, I should say, where folks in academic institutions such as myself and then those in NGOs who are working and targeting organizations like the Canada Pension Plan are now in ongoing dialogue so that we can support each other in our various efforts. And so there's wonderful ways that this project has been very supportive of movements. What's coming up for the Corporate Mapping Project and for Divest UVic? The Corporate Mapping Project, we've got in May, our third summer institute is going to be online this time, of course. But this third one will again bring together graduate students and upper-level undergraduate students from across Canada, along with team members from the Corporate Mapping Project and allies from social movements in the community. It runs as a graduate-level course, but it's a lot more than that. It's very interactive, and we try to pull all of the knowledge that we've developed and, uh, you know, knowledge from academic literature and movement literature into a kind of rich experience for the students. Then in June, we're planning a conference that will be online and will be very much oriented toward activism and looking toward alternatives to fossil capitalism. And we have a book coming out which is called Regime of Obstruction, and it will be launched, I think, in April, maybe May. As we mentioned, the UVic Board of Governors has divested their working capital fund from fossil fuels. However, the UVic Foundation still has approximately $40 in the endowment that's directly invested in fossil fuels. So definitely this next step and getting full divestment across UVic's endowments is going to be the next focus for the campaign. We will also be pushing for divestment campaigns across Canada. We're working in collaboration with the Divest Canada Coalition, which has about 30 different divestment campaigns across Canada. So being able to share the lessons learned from this eight-year campaign, I think will be really valuable for these other activist networks across Canada in their work. 
You have been listening to my interview with Bill Carroll, James Rowe, and Emily Lowen. To learn more about the Corporate Mapping Project, go to corporatemapping.ca, and to learn more about Divest UVic, go to divestuvic.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 